0: section 31 of Mark Twain's autobiography volume 2 this LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by John Greenman Wednesday March 21st 1906 mental telegraphy letter from Mr. Jock Brown search for Dr. John Brown's letters a failure Mr. Twitchell and his wife Harmony have an adventure in Scotland. Mr. Twitchell's Picture of a Military Execution Letter relating to Foundation of the Players Club, the mismanagement which caused Mr. Clemens to be expelled from the club. He is now an honorary member. Certainly mental telegraphy is an industry which is always silently at work, oftener than otherwise, perhaps, when we are not suspecting that it is— affecting our thought. A few weeks ago, when I was dictating something about Dr. John Brown of Edinburgh, and our pleasant relations with him during six weeks there, and his pleasant relations with our little child Susie, he had not been in my mind for a good while, a year perhaps. But he has often been in my mind since— and his name has been frequently upon my lips, and as frequently falling from the point of my pen. About a fortnight ago I began to plan an article about him and about Marjorie Fleming, whose first biographer he was, and yesterday I began the article. Today comes a letter from his son Jock, From whom i had not previously heard for a good many years he has been engaged in collecting his father's letters for publication this labor would naturally bring me into his mind with some frequency and i judge that his mind telegraphed his thoughts to me across the atlantic i imagine that We get most of our thoughts out of somebody else's mind by mental telegraphy, and not always out of heads of acquaintances, but, in the majority of cases, out of the heads of strangers—strangers far removed, Chinamen, Hindus, and all manner of remote foreigners whose language— we should not be able to understand but whose thoughts we can read without difficulty seven green hill place edinburgh eighth march 1906 dear mr clemens i hope you remember me jock son of dr john brown at my father's death i handed to dr j t brown all the letters i had to my father As he intended to write his life being his cousin and lifelong friend he did write a memoir published after his death in 1901 but he made no use of the letters and it was little more than a critique of his writings if you care to see it i shall send it among the letters which i got back in 1902 were some from you and mrs clemens i have now got a large number of letters written by my father between eighteen thirty and eighteen eighty two and intend publishing a selection in order to give the public an idea of the man he was this i think they will do miss e t mclaren is to add the necessary notes i now write to ask you if you have letters from him and if you will let me see them and use them i enclose letters from yourself and mrs clemens which i should like to use fifteen sheets typewritten though i did not write as i should to you on the death of mrs clemens i was very sorry to hear of it through the papers and as i now read these letters she rises before me gentle and lovable as i knew her i do hope you will let me use her letter it is most beautiful i also hope you will let me use yours i am yours very sincerely john brown we searched for dr john's letters but without success i do not understand this there ought to be a good many and none should be missing for mrs clemens held dr john in such love and reverence that his letters were sacred things in her eyes and she preserved them and took watchful care of them during our ten years absence in europe Many letters and like memorials became scattered and lost, but I think it unlikely that Dr. Johns have suffered this fate. I think we shall find them yet. These thoughts about Jock bring back to me the Edinburgh of thirty-three years ago, and the thought of Edinburgh brings to my mind one of Rev. Joe Twitchell's adventures— a quarter of a century ago twichell and harmony his wife visited europe for the first time and made a stay of a day or two in edinburgh they were devotees of scott and they devoted that day or two to ransacking edinburgh for things and places made sacred by contact with the magician of the north toward midnight on the second night They were returning to their lodgings on foot. A dismal and steady rain was falling, and by consequence they had George Street all to themselves. Presently the rainfall became so heavy that they took refuge from it in a deep doorway, and there in the black darkness they discussed with satisfaction all the achievements of the day. Then Joe said, "It has been hard work and a heavy strain on the strength, but we have our reward. There isn't a thing connected with Scott in Edinburgh that we haven't seen or touched, not one. I mean the things a stranger could have access to. There is one we haven't seen, but it's not accessible a private collection of relics and memorials of Scott, of great interest. But I do not know where it is. I can't get on the track of it. I wish we could, but we can't. We've got to give the idea up. It would be a grand thing to have a sight of that collection, Harmony." A voice out of the darkness said, come upstairs, and I will show it to you. And the voice was as good as its word. The voice belonged to the gentleman who owned the collection. He took Joe and Harmony upstairs, fed them, and refreshed them. And while they examined the collection, he chatted and explained. When they left at two in the morning, they realized that they had had the star time of their trip. Joe has always been on hand when anything was going to happen, except once. He got delayed in some vexatious and unaccountable way, or he would have been blown up at Petersburg when the mind defenses of that place were flung heavenward in the Civil War when i was in hartford the other day he told me about another of his long string of providential opportunities i think he thinks providence is always looking out for him when interesting things are going to happen this was the execution of some deserters during the civil war when we read about such things in history we always have the same picture, blindfolded men kneeling with their heads bowed, a file of stern and alert soldiers fronting them with their muskets ready, an austere officer in uniform, standing apart, who gives sharp, terse orders, Make ready, take aim, fire, There is a belch of flame and smoke the victims fall forward expiring the file shoulders arms wheels marches erect and stiff-legged off the field and the incident is closed joe's picture is different and i suspect that it is the true one the common one in this picture The deserters requested that they might be allowed to stand not kneel that they might not be blindfolded but permitted to look the firing file in the eye these requests were granted the men stood erect and soldierly they kept their color they did not blench their eyes were steady but these things could not be said of any other of the persons present a general of brigade sat upon his horse white-faced white as a corpse the officer commanding the squad was white-faced white as a corpse the firing file were white-faced and their forms wobbled so that the wobble was transmitted to their muskets when they took aim the officer of the squad could not command his voice and his tone was weak and poor not brisk and stern when the file had done its deadly work it did not march away martially erect and stiff-legged it wobbled this picture commends itself to me as being the truest one that any anyone has yet furnished of a military execution. In searching for Dr. Brown's letters, a failure, we have made a find which we were not expecting. Evidently it marks the foundation of the Players' Club, and so it has value for me. Daly's Theatre, New York, January 2nd, 1888. Mr. Augustine Daly will be very much pleased to have Mr. S. L. Clemens meet Mr. Booth, Mr. Barrett, and Mr. Palmer, and a few friends at lunch on Friday next, January 6, at one o'clock in Delmonico's, to discuss the formation of a new club which it is thought will claim your interest r s v p all the founders i think were present at that luncheon among them booth barrett palmer general sherman bispham aldrich and the rest i do not recall the other names i think lawrence hutton states in one of his books that the club's name the players had been already selected and accepted BEFORE THIS LUNCHEON TOOK PLACE, BUT I TAKE THAT TO BE A MISTAKE. I REMEMBER THAT SEVERAL NAMES WERE PROPOSED, DISCUSSED, AND ABANDONED AT THE LUNCHEON, THAT FINALLY THOMAS BAILEY Aldridge SUGGESTED THAT COMPACT AND SIMPLE NAME THE PLAYERS, AND THAT EVEN THAT HAPPY TITLE WAS NOT IMMEDIATELY ACCEPTED. HOWEVER, THE DISCUSSION WAS VERY BRIEF. THE OBJECTIONS TO IT WERE EASILY ROUTED AND DRIVEN FROM THE FIELD, AND THE VOTE IN ITS FAVOR WAS UNANIMOUS. I LOST MY INTEREST IN THE CLUB THREE YEARS AGO FOR CAUSE, BUT IT HAS LATELY RETURNED TO ME, TO MY GREAT SATISFACTION. MR. BOOTH'S BEQUEST WAS A GREAT AND GENEROUS ONE, BUT HE LEFT two. The other one was not much of a benefaction. It was a relative of his who needed a support. As secretary, he governed the club and its board of managers like an autocrat from the beginning until three or four months ago, when he retired from his position superannuated. From the beginning. I left my dues and costs to be paid by my business agent in Hartford, Mr. Whitmore. He attended to all business of mine. I interested myself in none of it. When we went to Europe in 91, I left a written order in the secretary's office, continuing Whitmore in his function of paymaster of my club dues. Nothing happened until a year had gone by. Then a bill for dues reached me in Europe. I returned it to the secretary and reminded him of my order, which had not been changed. Then, for a couple of years, the bills went to Whitmore, after which a bill came to me in Europe. I returned it with previous remarks repeated, but about every two years, the sending of bills to me would be resumed. I sent them back with the usual remarks. Twice the bills were accompanied by offensive letters from the secretary. These I answered profanely. At last we came home in 1901. No bills came to me for a year. Then we took a residence at Riverdale on the Hudson and straightway came a player's bill for dues. It was a weary, a weary, and I put it in the waste-basket. Ten days later the bill came again, and with it a shadowy threat. I waste-basketed it. After another ten days the bill came once more, and this time the threat was in a concreted condition it said very peremptorily that if the bill were not paid within a week i would be expelled from the club and posted as a delinquent this went the way of its predecessors into the wastebasket on the named day i was posted as expelled robert reed david monroe and other special friends in the club were astonished, and put themselves in communication with me to find out what this strange thing meant. I explained to them. They wanted me to state the case to the management, and require a reconsideration of the decree of expulsion, but I had to decline that proposition, and therefore things remained as they were until a few months ago when the ancient secretary retired from the autocracy. The boys thought that my return to the club would be plain and simple sailing now, but I thought differently. I was no longer a member. I could not become a member without consenting to be voted for by the board, like any other candidate, and I would not do that. The management had expelled me upon the mere statement of a clerk that I was a delinquent. They had not asked me to testify in my defense. They might properly argue from that, that I had not all of a sudden become a rascal, and that I might be able to explain the situation if asked. The board's whole proceeding had been like all the board's proceedings from the beginning arbitrary insolent stupid that board's proper place from the beginning was the idiot asylum i could not allow myself to be voted for again because from my view of the matter i had never lawfully and legitimately ceased to be a member however A way fair and honorable to all concerned was easily found to bridge the separating crack. I was made an honorary member, and I have been glad to resume business at the old stand. End of section 31 Wednesday, March 21, 1906